You're listening to Notes from Norwich. This is episode 23 of Notes from Norwich. We're talking about chapter 47, and my name is Chris, and I'm one of the three excellent presenters of this podcast, and I'm here with the other two, who are even better than me, Jan and Marguerite. How are you two doing? I don't know if... I, excellent is high praise. <laughs> well, we, we try. We try. We do. Today is the Feast of St. Andrew, so... Um, what do we have to say about St. Andrew? I loved the readings this morning um, for morning prayer. And I, uh, there's a, so on major feast days, I grab the patristic source from the Roman Catholic office of readings uh-huh. to kind of supplement. Um, and today it was this lovely excerpt from a homily by St. John Chrysostom, mm-hmm. um, which talked about like, the, the joy with which St. Andrew shared the treasure that he received in his belief and grabbing, grabbing Peter and dragging him along. Um, and how quickly, so, how quickly Andrew had figured out yeah. that, that Jesus is the Messiah. Yeah. And he wasted um, no time in, yeah. in bringing others. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's had me thinking about evangelism to loved ones and living out that witness. Wow. It's good stuff. It is. The church church that I served in Emporia, Kansas was called St. Andrews, so I've been thinking about them today a little bit. We always used to celebrate uh, the Feast of St. Andrew as our patronal feast day, um, and so that was usually right around Advent 1, and you, you can't really give up an Advent Sunday. Mm-hmm. Because there's so few of them, and they're so important. So we would celebrate the Feast of St. Andrew usually on uh, Sunday evening. Um, just get everyone to come back together, or like on a, on a Wednesday evening, and we would just turn it into like an evening liturgy, and then potluck, and, and um, you know, pop open bottles of champagne and stuff, really make a party out of it. I love the evening liturgy with potluck model. Yeah, I just love that so much. It's good stuff. I miss back, eating with people. Yeah, back back in the day yeah. when we could do that. Yeah. Anyway, that oh, the reason that you're in church with these people, the only reason you know them is because of your baptism. You know, it's baptism that has thrown you together with these people, and so sacramentally, there is a reason for you to look at each person that you see there. I just love that. So, so chapter 47, we're just, um, we were talking about doing 47 and 48, but I think we're, maybe we'll get to 48, but we're do, We're going to focus on 47. And then um, we'll see where we go. So where do we, start so though we're not doing 47 and 48 necessarily um i've been thinking about our last episode and um the the holding together of the judgment of god and the judgment of man holding together what julia knows from the church and what she knows from her revelation from god um and i think chapters 47 and 48 are a good reflection of that or a good example of it. Because in 47, she's talking about the purpose of God's mercy. And she, she starts out saying, um, for by the teaching that I had beforehand, I understood that the mercy of God was supposed to be the remission of his wrath after the time that we have sinned. And so she, she like 47 is talking purpose and function of mercy. And she's wrestling with that. 48 is where she, I think, ends up getting into her understanding of mercy as she's received it in the revelations. And so she's, this is kind of a diptych. She's kind of wrestling with the church's teaching in 47 and then kind of exploring what God shows her in 48. 
Um, so that, that conversation we had last time about the, the tension has really informed how I read these chapters. Basically, Julian was taught that sin, and that is that offends God, and then God is angry with us, and then we repent or perform a penance or repent and perform a penance, and then that makes God not angry with us anymore, and then we're forgiven and we just start over again. And that is not what she hears from God at all. That's not. That's not the message she receives at all. And so, yeah, she needs to, she needs to work, work that through. So is this, Chris, last time you used the word economy of sin to describe the, the kind of what she's learning from church. And I think that, uh, that resonated with what I saw in this chapter that she's, she's kind of dealing with like how the nitty gritty of how sin works in our lives. Um, wrestling with what the church has taught her. So what the church has taught her, this is in the orange book. Um, the bottom of page one Oh nine for by the teaching that I had beforehand, I understood that the mercy of God was supposed to be the remission of his wrath. After the time that we have sinned, It seemed to me that to a soul whose intention and desire is to love, the wrath of God would be more severe than any other pain, and therefore I accepted that the remission of his wrath would be one of the principal objectives of his mercy. But then she goes on to say, but in spite of anything that I might behold and desire, I could not see this point in the entire showing. Like, I was taught this by the church— I didn't see it when God was showing me stuff. Markedly not denying what she is taught by the church. Mm -hmm. Um, But let's see. Okay. This is what I've gotten from the church. How do I reconcile this? Um, And it's your, the, was it Rowan Williams that wrote the bit on Teresa of Avila that you were talking about last time, Chris, mm-hmm. about how like mystics going back and relearning the externals? Yeah, just f- living fully into the teaching of the church in a way that's kind of radical. Was uh, uh, I think he he. So Rowan Williams is basically saying that for the most part, the church teaches stuff and most people don't actually live into it. Like we've got all these kind of rules and structures and mindsets and philosophies and doctrines and practices that are all designed to support this life fully lived within the gospel, but most people actually don't do it. And so they live at this kind of like, what's the point of all these rules and regulations? Because I don't see the impact that they're having. But for the mystics, they say, oh, this all makes perfect sense. Because once you start living completely within the gospel life, everything else makes sense. Um, So it's kind of, uh, I guess the metaphor is that like, when you first start going to the gym, you don't see the point of going to the gym because it's just suffering. But when you're an elite athlete, it all makes sense to you because uh, you're, you're bearing the fruit of all of the components actually coming together. So how do you get from one stage to the other? I guess grace, <laughs> grace is a big answer, but is it the only answer? I wonder. Grace and wrestling. I mean, I think that this is, this is a process of her wrestling with, how to integrate it. Well, she says that she understood thus man is changeable in this life and by frailty and by simplicity and lack of cunning being overcome, he falls into sin. This doesn't really point much of a finger of fault at a sinner to me. This is what she said that she understood from God that sin is just here around us 
and we fall into it because yeah. of our because of our frailty, our simplicity, because we're not smart enough, we're not strong enough. We we flit around from idea to idea and place to place and activity to activity. We're not solid or stable, as Benedict would tell us. It's a lack of skill. Uh, the the oblate the Julian oblate rule talks about a lack of skill, like an unskilledness in as in practicing virtue. Um, it's very much not a like rotting at the core, um, or snow covered feces. Um, <laughs> Not having to bleep that one out, Chris. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the 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 frailty, this weakness um, that we fall into. It kind of pulls in this. So, how do we? Um, I mean, Christianity has to make sense of the prevalence of sin. Augustine famously comes up with his answer, which is which then becomes known as the doctrine of original sin, that it's essentially a sexually transmitted disease. Uh, but it's not really so much that sex is the problem, and I think people get Augustine wrong in that, that he's not condemning sexuality per se. He's he's saying that it inevitably this has to be passed on from generation to generation somehow. Um and and so there must be some explanation for how it is that we are apparently born into a tendency towards sinfulness when that tendency can't be part of God's original plan for how new people get created. So there must be something else going on, something else happening in the reproductive activity. The orthodox approach to dealing with the prevalence of sin is that we are born into a kind of environment of sinfulness and it in the same way that you know if you're born um anyone who's born naturally is born into uh an oxygen containing atmosphere and you breathe oxygen just because you're surrounded by it you are likewise as a human born into a world in which all humans are sinning in little ways and big ways all the time. And so you are born into a world where by the time you're 48 hours old, you've already been exposed to all kinds of little tiny sins. And this begins to have an impact on you and creates fear and creates doubt and creates uh, a sense of risk and uh, lack and um, all those other things that then make you make choices that are not the best choices. Um, so it's just kind of if you're born into an, into an environment where sin is prevalent, then it has an impact on you uh, inevitably. And so nobody's really at fault in it. And I think this is Marguerite, you're right. This is the same sort of thing that, that Julian is saying that there's no um, culpability in this. Like nobody, like, we are not to blame because it's inevitable. It's just a side effect of being human under the current situations of humanity. But that doesn't mean that we can just ignore sin. I think he also says that sin makes us sad and woeful and miserable. And I I support that theory 100%. I have had arguments with people who think that people who sin are happy or happier. I know you're shaking your head. No, of course they're not. I mean, but but maybe, you know, maybe people think that they are or they, you know, in their sinning, they get a lot of stuff or they triumph over others or something and they, and they, they think that they're happy. But Julian's point is that sin is like our biggest sorrow. That the, the effect of falling into sin is one of making us miserable. 
I've actually been heading in the direction in, in the last year or two of of increasingly wanting to detach joy and sorrow from sin and virtue entirely. And that's, um, I think it's hinted at in many of the Psalms. Um, and it's certainly like born of this kind of this meditation that I've been making on the Christian response to suffering in general, that um, the, the two don't necessarily have anything to do with each other at all. People who do sinful things sometimes experience an immediate sense of sorrow and suffering, or sometimes they experience an immediate sense of, of joy and, and a feeling of power and, and glory. Um, and people likewise who do virtuous stuff sometimes are met immediately with, with, a, with good feeling. And sometimes it, it's miserable for them. So I've been trying to detach the, the, the emotional outcome from the behavior and focusing instead on the fact that virtue brings, brings us closer to God and sin brings us away from God. And the outcome of that eventually is either joy or the lack of joy. But, um, But I don't think necessarily. I mean, I think I can think of examples where people do sinful things, and at least right in the moment, it feels great, and they feel great, and uh, um, and so that's a puzzle because, um, like it it sh- should make sense that there should be like a. Uh, well, this is like karma, right? Like if 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 you do bad things and bad things are supposed to happen to you, well, not not immediately, not always. I mean, there's a lot of people doing a lot of sinful stuff in a lot of uh, positions of power, <laughs> and they seem to have a lot of smiles on their faces. Um, but I don't think they will eternally, and that's that's a big difference. And I think it's I think it's that eternal fundamental sense that Julian is meaning woe and joy in in relation to sin. Um, because I think her, her understanding of the woe that sin causes is because it distracts us from the fundamental desire of the soul, which is to see God. Um, and so insofar as like sin causes woe it's because it's keeping us from seeing it's blinding us so she right after this talking about our frailty she's she's talking that the, the cause of being overwhelmed into this to the temptation and woe and sorrow is because we do not see god if we saw god none of this would happen but we do not we don't see god perfectly and unfailingly. And, and that's, I think for Julian, our soul's fundamental desire in this life is to see God and sin, sin, whether it feels like pleasurable or not in the moment is sorrowful because it leaves that fundamental desire unmet. This is the catch-22 of sin, right? We sin, we have a greater tendency towards sin because we don't see God. And if we were to see God, then we would say, well, there's obviously no point in sinning because I can see God. But the sin is also what prevents us from being able to see God more easily than we do. So what can break us out of this cycle? And I think that's where faith comes in, the idea that you just kind of act as though something were true, even if you don't yet believe it yourself. And this is, you know, where the whole strengthening uh, example of the Christian community is supposed to help, I think, Uh, you know, surrounded by spiritual guides and fellow seekers who are wrestling with the same stuff, who can begin to show you what it looks like if you break out of that cycle. Um, and begin to say, well, why don't I just try not sinning for a bit and see how that works out for me? Um, and then you begin to maybe see that 
that life can be lived uh, differently. Yeah, I think um, how how is the cycle broken? It's by God showing Himself to us, like it, like it is an intervention. Whether that comes in the form of community or um, in the form of a crucifix held to your face, <laughs> um, like there is a there's a an intervention, and this is like. This is the principle of incarnation, like God, God becoming incarnate is God showing himself to us um, in, in a way that disrupts this cycle of spiritual blindness. Um, and so whether that hap- like it happened in a visionary experience, through sacramental means, through community, through a combination of all above, um, there's this, uh, the, the mercy of God operates by disrupting this kind of spiritual solipsism that looks only to ourselves and to our sin instead of to God. Now, I think about like, the, the way that the sacraments operate in, in my relationship with God, it, it, it's encounter, it's spiritual sight, sometimes physical sight. You know, like, uh, I, I, th- I think about the, the most profound moment other than receiving the Eucharist during the Mass is the priest elevating the elements and just looking. Um, so this... God, God meets us in various ways. God, God uh, interrupts this cycle um, in, a, in, a, in a variety of modes. Um, I, so I, I guess what I'm saying is I, it's not always just like fake it till you make it or like act as though um, there are other ways, like God intervenes. There is, there's active intervention. Thoughts, Marguerite? I think of the people who um, who are so far away from that. And, and I think of people, and now I'm I'm mostly thinking of people like on television, but people who are so deep, deeply into a life of evil that they don't even, they don't seem to even feel um, feel apart from anything. I, I don't know. I think that you can be you can be wedged into um, you, you can be wedged into a, a distance from God and you can be wedged into a closeness to God. And sin would feel very, very painful to somebody who was close to God. Now, how does this happen? You know, how does, how does some person, how does, you know, Joe over here become close to God and Bill over there living a life of, living a life of, of sin and crime? For instance, I mean, how does how how does it how is that decided? How does that happen? And this is, you know, this I don't know, but I think Julian would say that God loves both of those people the same and wants the same thing for both of those people and has an idea of how both of those people are going to finish up, for lack of a better term. Um, Bill over there in his life of crime, however rich he is, however many um, women he has falling all over him, however, whatever great clothes he has to wear, you know, all of that, he's still miserable. I know he is. <laughs> I just, I just know he is. I, I know he's not, I know he can't, 
he can't feel the joy in his heart that's that whoever it was over on the other side has for being close to God and praying every day. It's just not possible. We'll say Andrew. We'll call that other person Andrew because it's Andrew's feast day today. How's that? Okay. So we want to talk about these five kinds of operations. I perceived in me five kinds of operations, which are these. Rejoicing, mourning, desire, fear, and certain hope. My immediate question when I read that was operations of what? Um, I, I could not find a good answer to that. Um, so I, I almost wonder if it's just kind of these five things were going on inside me or am I missing a <laughs> an antecedent to that? Like, is, are these op- is she saying these are operations of mercy? Or are these just going goings on inside her? What it reminds me of is the the section in it's in our catechism, but it's I mean it's it's not unique to the Episcopal Church, but uh, the the different uh, modes of prayer. It's all prayer, but then some of it is intercession, and some of it is petition, and some of it is. Uh, uh, repentance or confession and some of it is adoration and some of it is thanksgiving um all of it prayer but just different aspects different movements within the symphony of prayer there's your metaphor for you so that's that's what i was reminded of i don't i don't i don't know why i was reminded of it just uh, you know something broken out into five Distinct but related, fuzzy, overlapping mm-hmm. modes, just orientations of her soul to the divine majesty. Um, I don't know. It's a mystery. Marguerite, what do you think? What are these five operations? I think they're operations of the soul, how, how a person feels in prayer. Um, you know, the different kinds of prayer that are in the catechism, that's, that's a really good, uh, that's a good connection. Um, the different ways that people feel in prayer, I don't know that I would have or could have even listed anything like this. I mean, this is, but it, it covers, it covers a big, broad range of feeling and, um, an orientation. And what she's saying is that prayer is not just a constant experience. You know, you're not always like we settle down to pray. You're not always yearning for God. Mm -hmm. You're not always mourning. You're not always rejoicing. You're not always um, afraid that this feeling of closeness to God is going to go away. That was the fear, the fear one um, resonated so deeply with me. Just a fear because it seemed to me in all that time that that vision would fail and I would be left to myself. Um, that image of like the fear of being left to myself. And um, for me, that conjures being left to my own devices. Uh, left left to my own blindness. Um, that is something that I have definitely felt in prayer, uh, but have not named, not, have not been able to name. Um, and she puts a name to that, that it's, and, and in the, in, in the context, like this makes sense. Like she's talking about this, this desire for sight and the sight of God that keeps us from sin. And so the terror in prayer is that that would fail and that we would then fall into sin. Um, 
very real, very real. Um. So in a lot of the kind of spiritual greats writing about prayer, you know, John of the Cross and his Dark Night of the Soul and Ascent of Mount Carmel and Teresa of Avila's Interior Castle and um, the Abandonment to Divine Providence and uh, the Ladder of Divine Ascent, and all these other kind of like great books talking about the dynamics of prayer, they all have this um, – this portion that seems to always be like two thirds of the way through whatever the book is, where they talk about the different, um, different manifestations of the qualities of prayer at different times. Like once you move past, um, like structured prayer, once you get past move, the point at which you, you stop saying your prayers and you start praying, if that makes sense. Um, then there's this, you know, this like these these masters telling us what it, what it is like sometimes what you're liable to encounter in prayer. Sometimes you'll hear locutions or like words from a supernatural source. Sometimes you might have ecstatic visions. Sometimes you might have periods of dryness. Sometimes you might have a feeling of uh, uh, of kind of warmth and consolation. So all these different things might happen to you during prayer and they're all fine is what they say. Like they're all part of the journey and here's, here's, here's what to expect so that when it happens to you, you don't flip out because it's new and it doesn't feel like quote prayer should feel unquote. And suddenly this, this five operations is feeling very much like a very short version of those. So it's like Julian saying, when you sit down to pray and you're having a genuine period of of inner dialogue with God, any of a number of things might happen. And some of them seem contradictory, like fear and certain hope seem as though they are diametrically opposed, right? Rejoicing and mourning seem like they are diametrically opposed but both uh, all five of these are perfectly natural elements to the way that our souls are responding to god in any given moment um simply because we are perpetually in this um state of being both connected to god and distance from god both you know um created in the image of God and falling short of the glory that has been intended for us. And so we have to live in this paradox to be human is to be in this um, paradoxical state. So at any given moment, one of those will shine slightly brighter than the others. And that'll just, you know, the deeper our prayer gets, the more that gets magnified. So a slight um, sense of, of, Vulnerability will be will become magnified into this huge feeling of of fear, and a very slight feeling of, you know, um, security, will become magnified into this huge feeling of you know eternal security. And you know, maybe give it five minutes, and the weather will change. Right? It's, <laughs> it's what everywhere that I've ever lived, except for when I lived in California. Um, Somebody would say, well, that's what they say around here. If you don't like the weather, just wait five minutes. Everyone says that wherever you are, except in California. If you didn't like the weather, you'd have to wait till October. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so what do you think? Yeah, the the constancy thing is like she, she says in the next paragraph, um, this kind of vision of God cannot be constant in this life. Um, so that it, it goes through these, this, these ups and downs, these dries, these plentiful times. Um, and that is for God's own honor and for the increase of our endless joy. So that lack of constancy not only is to be expected, 
but is for God's honor and in a, and is somehow an occasion for our joy. Um, and I'll be honest, in the dry spells, I do not see how it could possibly be an occasion for joy. Um, in in the periods where I don't feel like I see God, where I, where my my spiritual sight is clouded, um, it is hard to fathom how this could possibly be something for my endless joy. seems to be a common theme among all the mystics that I've ever read that the actual profound mystical experiences that they write about are very few and far between. These are, these are not ecstatic visions that are happening to them like every Tuesday. They happen once and then maybe 25 years later, something similar will happen again. And that's it, you know, over the, the course of a life. And that seems to feed them. I mean, Julian, right? How many days is it when she's having these visions? Three? Yeah. And yeah. then, yeah. And then, well, then, I mean, the rest of her life is this, is this reflection on it. Um, but Peter, over the course of his life, he lives a whole life, and he only spends how much time up at the top of the Mount of Trans of the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, he wants to stay there for the 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 rest of time. Let's build these booths and and live up here. Um, and Jesus says, "No, we've we've got work to do. You you need this vision to sustain you through the the passion, but like the." the experience of ecstasy is not the point. The experience of the vision is it serves a purpose. Like you can't live your whole life in that feeling of the very best moment of your life. You've got to live your life. You've just got to let that best moment drive you forward. It's, it's, it's filling up the tank, but then you've still got the rest of the journey to go. Um. Yeah, I think we would all be a mess if we were to just live in bliss all the time. Then maybe we need those times of desolation in order to, I don't know, to keep going, to grow, to recognize Have something to be transformed. Yeah. Or to recognize that there are consequences, you know, maybe. I mean, Jesus certainly has plenty of parables and stories that are messages of judgment, you know, and progressive Christians like to pretend that they don't exist, but, you know, he, he does talk about separating the sheep and the goats and, um, and there must be some purpose to all that um, beyond – and I don't think the point is to just scare people. Maybe to wake them up. And maybe those moments of uh, what feel like desolation and loneliness um, – Yeah, I don't know. They 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 must serve some purpose. Must they? Now I'm thinking about it. They, they, Julian certainly seems to say so. That they that they serve a purpose. Like I mean, she is she is saying that our our lapses in vision of God where we fall into ourselves, like that, that image of like tumbling into the pit of ourselves are there. They are for 
they, they, they serve a purpose to honor God and to increase our joy. So Julian certainly thinks that, that the dark and dry times serve a purpose. Um, and it's, I, I think it's going back to that idea of being the suffering, the woe being transformed into well that, that glorifies God. That there is that that transformation. I forget which chapter she was talking about this in, but like, like why why do we suffer? Um, well, part of why suffering is allowed to happen is so that there is this transformation. We were allowed to fall into sin so that we might grow out of it into a deeper, an even deeper understanding of God. She says at the beginning of the chapter, two objectives belong to our soul by obligation. One is that we reverently marvel, and the other is that we meekly suffer, ever rejoicing in God. And so it sounds to me like what she's saying is part of our job in this world and in our faith is to suffer. And if that's the case, I think it's okay to be thankful for it, to be thankful for the suffering that we have to endure, whatever form it takes. And that's a very hard message to to dare to say out loud. But I think it, I think it's there. And when we're feeling far away from God, and this is where the faith part comes into it. We have to know that that's just a temporary moment, a temporary feeling or a temporary condition. We know that, that God will reach, reach us when God is ready to reach us. And whether that's in another year or five years or 20 years or tomorrow right after supper doesn't matter. I understood thus man is changeable in this life and by frailty and by simplicity and by lack of cunning being overcome, he falls into sin. So in one of the articles that I read for one of my classes this semester, I think, maybe I have a dim memory of it from somewhere else, but I think it's in one of the articles that I read for one of my classes this semester. Um, Somebody advanced the notion that the root of all sin is either conviction that we are not as frail as we actually are, or an attempt to short-circuit the recognition that we are as frail as we actually are, if that makes sense. So either we're convinced that we're as powerful as God is, and then we become, you know, when we start building the Tower of Babel, um, or we are aware that we are mortal, and it terrifies us, and then we do whatever we can to shield ourselves from the existential um, horror of that awareness. Um, and really, they're just two sides of the same coin. They're really just um, uh, an inability to make sense of our own mortality. Um, so I understood thus man is changeable in this life frail simple and lacks cunning um, which is are all just different ways of saying that we are mortal and we don't know what to do with that fact I I, I appreciate that naming of like trying to short circuit 
the awareness of our frailty. Um, we've just wrapped up this class on the prophets and going through Ezekiel. Um, I see this in, in Israel, like exam, like exemplified in Israel, alternately trying to say they are great and self-sufficient um, and trying to avoid reckoning with how finite they are by, by seeking security with Egypt um, or with Tyre and Sidon. Um, and this, uh, this unwillingness to face up to their finitude and the journey that God takes them through through the course of Ezekiel is stripping away everything so that they have to face up to their frailty and utter dependence on God. Um, and that's sort of a macro level manifestation of this dynamic of like needing, needing to recognize our frailty individually um it's this self-knowledge the self like seeing ourselves as god sees us um it's the same same journey of having having our delusions of grandeur and our Delusions of finding security in things other than God taken away so that we actually look at God. That's the contrariness mm-hmm. that is within ourselves. Or one manifestation of it. I think that this is the kind of thing that shows up in all sorts of different ways. And it's, it, it flows. I mean, she, here, I mean, she's talking about original sin. Like here, uh, it flows from the root of our first sin with all that follows after from our own contrivance. So there's, there's this, yeah. everything else that comes out with this contrariness. But I think, I don't know, I might be putting words in Julian's mouth with this, but I, I, I think she would say that this unwillingness to look only at God is sort of the, the kernel at the heart of it all. Is that because looking at God requires recognition of dependence on God? Yeah. And we want uh, we want to lay claim to all the power that God has given humanity, which is mm-hmm. part of our created role as stewards, as the royal priesthood of creation. We were given a lot of power and authority – with one exception, which is that we needed to recognize that God was the supreme power and authority over us. And we mm-hmm. said, no, we want it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and that runs counter to, to all of our temptations. We, we can't see God if we adopt that posture. So, and that, would make sense why humility emerges as a central foundational virtue in so many uh, kind of Christian spiritual traditions. Um, Which is just the recognition that we are not God, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but also that we're not dirt. And and we live in a world, I think, that very, very often wants to convince us that we are useless so they can sell us stuff. 
And so then our solution is to go around telling ourselves that we are special and wonderful and deserve everything. And you're not the boss of me. And I'm, you know, I'm the princess. Um, I saw, (laughs) where did that come from? I saw someone uh, on the street the other day wearing a t-shirt, a pink t-shirt with glittery writing on it that said 100% princess. And I thought that's factually incorrect, (laughs) but never mind. I didn't, I didn't really say that to her, but it's just like, you know, that we need to tell ourselves these narratives because we live in a world that's constantly trying to drag us down. And so then the solution is to build up our hubris. And it means that like, we can't, we can't claim the dignity that we have within the created order and simultaneously recognize that we are nothing compared to God. It's a very hard balance for us to, to, um, to keep in balance. And it leads to things like rejoicing and mourning and desire and fear and certain hope all as part of a healthy uh, regimen of, of spirituality responses. Leading, leading towards seeing God. Yeah. We are also leading towards the end of this episode. Do we have a, a part of this that we would like to, uh, read as a, as a summary, as a conclusion? Certain hope was in the endless love that I saw I would be protected by God's mercy and brought to his bliss and rejoicing in his sight with this certain hope of his merciful protection gave me understanding and comfort so that mourning and fear were not greatly painful. thank you for listening to this episode to find out more about dame julian the revelations of divine love the order of julian of norwich or us check the show notes to this episode you can reach me chris arnold the producer of this series at apple tree pods on twitter or on facebook you can find the page apple tree podcasts that's all for now we'll talk to you soon May God bless you.